<clears throat> Turn, please, to Mark in chapter 10. Uh, Mark chapter 10, I want to read, beginning with verse 46, and read through verse 52. Mark 10, 46 to 52. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to your word, and I pray that you would enable us to listen well to your word, to hear it, and Father, that it would have that perfect work in our lives. Father, I do pray that you would be merciful to us and to see us uh, in our needs, and Father, that you would come and relieve those needs to help us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. To the uninformed, it would appear as if he, along with the other Jewish men and those probably in this large crowd that was with him, were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was Passover time. And uh, so it was necessary for them to go to Jerusalem for the celebration of that particular time, that particular feast in the life of, of Israel. So the, to the uninformed, it appears as if Jesus is simply going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but to the informed, that is, to the ones to whom he had been speaking, to those who really knew him, they would know that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He had told them that he was going up to Jerusalem and it was there that he would suffer. And it was there that he would be mocked and it was there that he would be beaten and it would be there that he would be put to death. And it was there from there then that he would rise from the dead. So to the informed, they should know that Jesus is going to Jerusalem not only to celebrate the Passover, but in that sense to be the Passover. He was the very one who would go and die. So he was on his way there. On his way there, he comes across this blind man. Now, we wonder what it is, you see, that moved Jesus to the cross. We know, on the one hand, that what moved Jesus to go to the cross was love. It was love for his Father's glory. It was love for his Father. Because we know that the glory of God the Father was scandalized when Adam and Eve sinned. And so Jesus comes, in a sense, to re restore his Father's glory, to glorify his Father, to show his Father to be great, that no one can, can scandalize him and sin against him. And so Jesus comes to restore, and to restore the glory to his Father, because he, he loves his Father. He comes because, no doubt, Jesus, as God loves the world. The scripture tells us that God loves the world. And so Jesus comes out of love for the world because the world was God's creation. And it was his creation to the degree that the earth, the scripture says, is the Lord's and all that's in it. That the heaven is the throne of God and earth is its footstool. And so Jesus comes to redeem 
to redeem the world because he, he loves the world. And now Jesus goes to the cross because he loves those. He loves those he had come to redeem, to save. And so he loves them and so he comes. But not only that, we see that the very love of Christ that moved him to the cross is also that which enabled his humility, that he, he cast aside his own glory, if you will, his own honor. And he set that all aside to come and to be a man and to suffer even death under a cross, suffer all the embarrassment and all the, all the pain and all of that. He came and he humbled himself. But you see, in this little incident that we see here, we see something else in the very heart of Jesus that drove him to the cross as well. Here's this blind man, a man by the name of Bartimaeus. In our family, as the children were growing up, we used to have a game called Blind Bart. Because, you see, Bartimaeus is the, is the only uh, one in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who has a name, and the only one healed. And, and in all of those, that, that we know who he is. We have a name for him, Bartimaeus. And so we would play Blind Bart, and somebody have a blindfold, and the other one got to play Jesus. And, and then we switch roles after a while but to teach these stories. But here's Bartimaeus. He's, he's there. Sounds like a reasonable game to me. You have to teach these things somehow. You might as well play Blind Bart, remember? And, um, and so uh, Bartimaeus is by the road. And he's, he's begging, and he hears that this crowd, and he hears that Jesus is in the crowd, and so he begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, like what happened very often, as people called out to Jesus, there were others in the crowd who rebuked him. He said, don't, don't, don't call out to him. We, we don't know quite why. We don't know why that was, but you get this sense of all these people moving, and, and, and here's Bartimaeus uh, sort of uh, on the side of the road, begging and crying out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, ha have mercy on me. It could well have been the, the, the way he called out to Jesus using this phrase, son of David, because we know that that was a messianic title. That is to say that the Messiah would carry this, this handle, this, this, this name, the son of David, because God had made a promise to King David, the ancient king of Israel, that there would be one who would sit on his throne forever. And as the prophets came, they began to flesh that out more, and they began to identify this one who was going to come. And, and Isaiah the prophet identifies him uh, like this, and we often read this passage as Christmas time. It's this passage out of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so as he uses this phrase, the son of David, that's almost a combative term. Because as Jesus heads up into Jerusalem, you see, that, that that's meaning the Messiah is coming into Jerusalem to establish his government. And so people are hushing this man. Don't, don't say this. Because you remember that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on what we call the triumphal entry on that, that Palm Sunday, it was that phrase that got him in the most trouble that they were pronouncing upon him, the son of David, the son of David. Because it was a threat to the authorities in Jerusalem that the son of David is now coming. Perhaps that's why uh, they, were, they were hushing him. But of course he couldn't be hushed. And, and as they hushed him, he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You have to picture this scene. There's a whole crowd of people with Jesus. And catch all the, the smells and all the, all the sounds, and, and they're, they're moving through the city of Jericho, 
on their way to Jerusalem. And Jericho, you see, is this beautiful city. In fact, it had, it had been built up so much that it had the nickname of the, the City of Roses. I don't know if they have a parade every year, but it was the City of Roses. And so it's this beautiful city, and Jesus is moving through it. There's this blind man in the midst of it calling out to Jesus. And, and he, as he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All of a sudden, Jesus stops. And you get this sense that when Jesus stopped, everybody stopped. Uh, in fact, in the, in the passage, it, it says that Jesus stood still. That would be a literal translation of Jesus stopped. Jesus stood still. And you get this sense of, of, of stillness, of calm in the person of Jesus as he stops there and he hears this. And we want to say, what is it about this, this, this calling out of Bartimaeus that caused Jesus to stop in his tracks? This Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What was it that caused him to stop right in his tracks? Could it be the, the messianic expression, son of David? Perhaps. But I rather think it was the word mercy. I rather think it was when Bartimaeus called out, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, have mercy on me. It, it was that part of it, the call to mercy. Because you see, this notion of mercy, this characteristic of mercy, is the very heart of God. You might remember, in fact, turn to this so you know I'm not lying. In Exodus, in chapter 33, Exodus chapter 33 is a, a great passage, a great story of, of Moses and God. And you remember that um, after all the giving of the Ten Commandments and the building of the, the idol and so forth, that God had shared with Moses that he wasn't going to go with him, that he was going to send an angel along. And Moses began to intercede and said, no, God, if you're not going, I'm not going. And so God says, all right, I'll go. And Moses says to God these great ambitious words, show me your glory. That is to say, says to God, I want to see you. I want to see who you are. Don't hide anything from me. Show me the fullness of your glory. Show me everything about you. You get this feeling that God kind of smiled. He said, well, Moses, if I showed you all of my glory, you'd blow up. You know, it's just too, too, too big. But what I'll do is I'll take you and I'll place you in this little cleft of the rock. I'll place you in this little, little spot here. And here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll proclaim my name before you. But as I do that, you, you can't look upon me on my front. You can only look upon my back. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. Except to say that God was saying, you can't take it all in. The best that you can receive right now of my glory is this reflection of who I am. And so here's how he does it in Exodus 33, and verse 18. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Which is to say, I'm going to reveal myself to you. So, because when God was proclaiming his name, God's name re revealed himself. It, it meant who he was. And if you knew the name of God, it meant you knew God and you knew his character. He says, I'm going to proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And here it is. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And then over in chapter 34, in verse 4, it says, so Moses chiseled out of two stone tablets, uh, uh, like 
chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. He proclaims his name. And his name is that of compassion and mercy and love. That's who he is. And so you see, when Jesus hears, have mercy on me, it's as if he stops. It, it, it commands his whole attention because that's who he is, the God of mercy. Now, now mercy is that inner disposition, a merciful disposition, that inner disposition that causes one to see the needs of another and desire to alleviate that need. Uh, one dictionary definition is this. That mercy is a disposition to spare or help another. This disposition, although inwardly felt, manifests itself outwardly in some kind of action. It is evident that mercy combines a strong emotional element, usually identified as pity, compassion, or love, with some practical demonstration of kindness in response to the condition or needs of the object of mercy. In other words, it, it responds, it feels, mercy does. And it understands the need of another. But it doesn't stop there. It has this sense of relieving that need, of alleviating that <laughs> That suffering. And so it's compelled, if you will, to act. And here's Jesus. He hears. He hears this word mercy. And he hears someone in need cry for mercy. And because he's God in the flesh, that causes him to stop in his tracks. Uh, we use the words grace and mercy all the time, and they're certainly related. In fact, one could make the case that, that God's grace is always merciful and his mercy is always gracious. But technically, as we look at those two words, and we're trying, if we try to distinguish one from the other, grace is that which comes from God to human beings because of their sin and guilt. And thus, grace brings pardon. God looks upon us graciously. He looks upon our sin and the guilt that comes from that, and he brings pardon. That's grace. But if we distinguish from that mercy just a bit, mercy is when God sees us in our misery and the suffering that comes because of our sin, and he brings comfort. He brings help. He comes to alleviate that particular need and to help us. Mercy and grace. Almost always they're put together in Scripture because that's who God is. He comes graciously to forgive us. And he does this sovereignly that is, uh, it's not merited on our part. And he's gracious to us, but he comes and brings to us mercy. In fact, our salvation itself is a merciful act of God's graciousness. For instance, uh, in Ephesians in chapter 2, in a wonderful passage of our salvation, we read this in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And the Spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But, verse 4, but 
because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's by grace. It's God's unmerited. We didn't earn it. His gracious favor to us that he saves us. And he's compelled by his love. He's moved by his mercy as he sees us in the misery of our sin. We saw that as, as God delivered the Israelites, for instance, uh, from Egypt in Exodus in chapter 3. In verse 7, the scripture says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the, seen the misery of my people in Egypt, have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I have, uh, he says, the cry of the Israelites have, has, have, has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, Moses, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring the people, my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. He heard their cries, he heard their suffering and God stops, if you will because he's full of mercy and he comes to our help and he comes to our aid to relieve that mercy. That's the very heart of God. Jesus, here's this man, this blind man, this poor man, and this man is crying out to Jesus for mercy and Jesus stops right in his tracks. You see, we mustn't think of God as this cold, calculating, scientific, objective-only being in the sky. Now, it isn't that God's governed by his emotions like we are. We fly off one way or another according to how we're feeling at the moment. We never have to worry about God being overstimulated in one area or another, being over-emotional, and therefore all of a sudden, poop, oh, I shouldn't have pressed that button. Um, because it's always reasoned, it's, it's always right, it's always correct, it's always perfect. But that doesn't mean that God is cold and calculated. In fact, Jesus himself is referred to our merciful, as our merciful high priest, the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. I don't know how many times I start a prayer by saying, Lord Jesus, you know how I feel. Because he does. Because he came and he lived. And the scripture tells us, for instance, in Hebrews in chapter 4, this... He says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And that's the good news, you see. The good news is that he understands, and he understands what it is to live life. He understands what it is to be human. And yet he did all of that without sin. So that when we go to him with our difficulties, we know he is the one who knows how to overcome them. I appreciate when I go to you with my difficulties, but do you know what the problem is when I go to you with my difficulties? You're no better at this than I am. Oh, we can help each other in the midst of that only as he helps us because he's the one who did all of this yet without sin. That's the good part of this, you see. And he understands us and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so when we go to him, we know that we, he understands and then he can also help us because he is our faithful, will always be true, and he's our merciful, he's moved by our suffering, high priest, 
He represents us. That's why one of the great sentences in Scripture is this, out of 1 Peter in chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. So you don't have to worry about casting your cares upon him. He says he wants us to do that. Why? Because he's our faithful and merciful high priest. Because he does, in fact, care for us. I'm not a sappy, sentimental person. At least I've been told that. But the truth of the matter is, we all suffer. We all have difficulties in our lives. There are always things that come up that make life painful and hard and difficult. And I don't know about you, but sometimes crying out to God for his mercy is like sixth on my list. I don't intend it to be sixth on my list, but I just go through life thinking, oh, I'll just do this, or I'll write a check for that, or I'll ask someone to do this. And that will alleviate the pain for the moment, but it really doesn't get at the guts of it. And yet we have before us this merciful, faithful high priest. He says, call out to me. Because when we're having difficulty, when we're in suffering, we mustn't forget to call out to God the merciful one. And you get this sense that when we call to him through Christ, he stops, if we could say it that way. And he comes to us. And you may say, well, does Jesus really understand? Let me read you something. I try to read to you about every two or three years. It's out of a play called The Long Silence. Some of you who might be reading a book by John Stott titled The Cross of Christ in a Sunday school class may come across this um, about two-thirds of the way through the book. But let me read this. It's, it's from a play called The Long Silence. And this, this play, uh, you'll see the gist of it as I just read this paragraph or two, is one where God, in a sense, is on trial. People don't really believe that he has the right to enter and judge them. He doesn't, they don't really believe that God knows enough about being a human being that, that he really can empathize with us at all. And it goes like this. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched, for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light. Where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Ha! Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. 
At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. The very Lord of glory, you see. No suffering. Isaiah said he was a man of suffering he was acquainted with grief, our grief. And thus he's our merciful and faithful high priest. And we can cry out to him at every moment in time. And that cry for mercy grabs his heart, if we could say it that way. And he hears us. And he comes to help us. Look, look what happened in this story with Bartimaeus. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And in other words, what a great privilege. We see what's going to happen now. Jesus has stopped, and Jesus is calling for you. So they say, cheer up. That is to say, be of good courage. And we should be, you see. We should live cheered up. We should live. Be of good heart. Some translations have it. Be comforted. Other translations have it. Why? Because Jesus stopped. He's heard us. He's calling us. He knows we're there. He knows our need. He's responding. So he said, cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Interesting question, verse 51. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. Now, that's not the first time Jesus ever made that question. James and John had come to Jesus. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, do whatever we ask. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And their response wasn't heal my blindness, but their response was, when you come into your kingdom, when you come into your glory, we'd like power and authority. We'd like one of us to sit on your right and one of us to be on your left. And Jesus said, I, I can't grant that. But here's a blind man who came to Jesus, and Jesus says, what would you like me to do for you? And he said, I'd like to see. And Jesus gave him his sight. Now, just apart from the miraculous nature of that, I know blind people. There may be someone here who can't see at all or well. For one person to look at a blind person and say, see, that just boggles the mind. I mean, we could all just go home and go, Phew. He's really cool. But as Jesus responds, you see, there's something even deeper, there's something even more significant, if I could say it that way, for us. And that is the sense that we see Jesus responding to this man's need because of a heart of mercy, because that's who he is. And it tells us that when we come to him with needs, he hears, he responds, he stops, he acts to help us. I can't define how he's going to do that in every situation, obviously. I don't know how he's going to do that in my own situations when I cry out for mercy but I know that that's who he is, and I know that when I cry for mercy that he'll hear and he'll respond and he'll act. But the thing about Bartimaeus was he simply comes to Jesus with his need and he lays it before him. 
in all humility, he says, this is what I can't do. James and John came to Jesus and said, this is what we can do for you. We can hang out on your right and on your left, and if you'll just give us that permission, then we will run things. It's okay, Jesus, you can stay in the middle, but we really are going to... But Bartimaeus comes to Jesus and says, here's what I can't do. Here's what causes me misery. Here's the difficulty of my life. I lay that before you, merciful one. Will you help me? And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. What's faith in this context? What's faith in this particular situation? Uh, Faith is simply this, seeing my inability, seeing my needs, seeing what I can't do, seeing what I I don't have, seeing what I can't get, seeing my weakness. And seeing Jesus' strength and trusting him. And so he poured it out to Jesus and said, I'd like to be able to see. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. He's our faithful and our merciful high priest. Now, how do we know that's true? How do we know that he'll do that for us? How do we know that he'll help us? How do we know that he'll stop? Well, because he's shown it to us. He's shown us his mercy as he goes to the cross. Because you see, he was on his way to Jerusalem. And he was there to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, but more than that, he was there to suffer the Passover. He was there to give his life, as he said, as a ransom for many. And so on that night he took bread and after giving thanks he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And what we remember here, at least in part, is the great mercy of God. The great mercy of God, the very one who sees us in our misery and in our pain and in our suffering, all caused by sin. And he comes to alleviate that by granting us forgiveness, by granting us help. One of my favorite stories in all of the scripture is one in the Old Testament, and I tell it from time to time to you. I tell it to myself quite often. It's a story out of 2 Samuel about a man I call my friend Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul. And you might remember that King Saul and King David had a problem. David had killed Goliath. Saul got very jealous, wanted David dead. The difficulty for Jonathan was that he and David were very good friends, such good friends that they had made a covenant together. And in making this covenant together, they had pledged their lives to each other, always to come to the aid of each other, that if one was in trouble, then the other would come and, 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 and bring help. And one of the words that's used in a relationship like that, in a covenant relationship like that, on how they'll treat each other is the word mercy. Some versions of the Bible in the Old Testament translate it loving kindness. In fact, if one person in a covenant would go to the other person in that covenant and say, I have a need and I'm appealing to your mercy, I'm appealing to your loving kindness, that other one in the covenant would be obliged. That other person in the covenant would be compelled to bring help, 
because he had already professed his love for the other. There's a time in the life of Saul and Jonathan that a battle was great and Jonathan was killed and Saul ended up falling on his own sword. David became king. When David became king, after Saul had died, various members in the household of Saul became very afraid. They became afraid because usually when one king replaced another, he would kill the whole family of the previous king. And so the household of Saul was in the palace. Saul and Jonathan are killed. Everybody runs in a panic. Jonathan has a five-year-old son named Mephibosheth. One of the servants in the household knows that Mephibosheth is upstairs in the nursery. They run to get him. When they run to get him, they grab him and they start to run out. And then the nurse drops him. And both his legs are broken. They pick him up. They rush out. And they go into hiding for a number of years. And they go into hiding because they're afraid of David. And during that course of time, David gets a stronger hold on the nation. And David becomes um, a greater and greater king. And then a day comes. David begins to muse like this. He says, Is there anyone left in the household of Saul to whom I may show mercy, loving kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anybody out there in Jonathan's household, this one to whom I've sworn my allegiance, though he's now dead, is there anybody out there in his household who's suffering at all? Because if there is, it's my obligation as the covenant brother of Jonathan to extend to him mercy, to go and do all that I can to alleviate that suffering and that difficulty. And there's an old servant named Ziba. Old servant named Ziba who comes to David and says, yes, there's, there's one. His name's Mephibosheth. But David, don't worry about him. He, he can't come and fight you because he's lame in both legs. David says, go get him. So the chariots go out and they, and they get Mephibosheth from where he's hiding and where he's been hiding. And now he's a teenage boy and so they bring him in the very presence of David and he falls on the ground because he's still afraid to be in the presence of David. He falls on the ground and he says, what do you want with me? I'm just a dead dog. Because he fully expects David just to kill him. And David says, no, 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 no. I've come to extend you mercy. I've come to restore to you all that is yours because of your father Jonathan and your grandfather Saul. I see you in your trouble and I'm going to, to restore all of that. In fact, you can live here in the palace with me. In fact, you can eat at my table every day. And you see, God extends to us that very mercy. He says to us, I see your difficulty see your need. Call upon me. It's as if he, he says, is there anybody in the household of Adam to whom I can show kindness for Jesus' sake? And he comes and he shows mercy to us and helps us in our time of need. Again, I don't know why so often in my own life it takes me so long before I get to where I, I cry out to God in mercy. The other day I was in our utility room in the basement and, and uh, I was getting some things to paint and uh, which is something I should never do. And anyway, I was, I was there, and, and I turned around, and I caught my foot on a sled uh, that was there. Uh, we only use it for decoration, but it's summer. And uh, so it was there, and I fell 
really hard on my knees first, and then I hit other places. And uh, I found myself laying on our basement floor, crying out for mercy from God, because I didn't know what had happened. I thought I'd broken both my knees. Uh, and I thought when I got up, that was good, A, that I got up, but B, that close to my mind at that moment in time was calling out to God for help. And how much, how, I thought, I need to have that close all the time. I need, you know, you know Bartimaeus knew that he was blind. I fool myself so much. I fool myself so much thinking I can see. And Jesus comes to me and says, what do you want? And I want to say, oh, just turn the page. I, I fool myself into thinking I can walk. And, 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 and Jesus comes to me and says, what do you want? And I say, oh, just come alongside. And what I really should be asking him to do is to heal my blindness and to heal my lameness and enable me to see and enable me to walk and to call upon him for mercy and to see my need. And the good news is that he stops, he calls us, and he helps us. And so by faith, we need to go to him and receive all the help that he brings. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even now as we look upon your table, we trust that your word is true. We've seen it in our own lives that you are our faithful and merciful high priest that your great compassion moved you to the cross to relieve the misery caused by sin. Father, we know that one day all of the misery caused by sin will be gone. And that even now you're showing us, perhaps in what may seem little by little, the great peace that we have in you, the great joy that comes from belonging to you. And so we pray that close to our lips, when any difficulty strikes, that it would be a movement of our own heart and mind to cry out for mercy, that you would help us. And so even now, Father, I pray that you would set aside this bread and this, this juice. It shall always remain bread and juice. But I pray that you set it apart in such a way as to enable us to see your mercy and how it's extended to us. And that you would build our faith so that we would cast all of our care upon you, knowing that you care for us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And I invite you to come. I invite you to come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he invites to come those who understand themselves to be hopeless and helpless, except by way of his sovereign mercy. That you see yourself to be sinners and you understand yourself to be unable to save yourself, unable to help yourself, and your total dependence, your reliance upon, is upon his mercy, the very mercy that's given to us by way of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's your desire then to follow him, to look to him, to call upon him. So let me invite the folks in these two sections to come down. aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, 
say, Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Pray with me, Father in heaven. We thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he continues to be merciful to us and you through him. And so we pray that you would help us in every time of need and that we would be people of faith. Confess our need and know that you're able and cast all of our cares upon you knowing that you care for us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there'll be elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction this morning is to sing together the doxology, that great praise, that great praise to God. So please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore and together. Let us sing.